Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who loved him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. We're glad that you could uh, join us this morning. My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here at the church. Uh, and if it's your first time in particular, we uh, really want to welcome you. Uh, but if you missed last week because of the uh, long weekend, or if you missed our town hall meeting last month, uh, there are three things that we want to focus on uh, for this year uh, in terms of the vision for our church, three kinds of growth. Uh, that we want to see. We want to grow smaller, we want to grow wider, and we want to grow deeper. So why would a church want to grow smaller? Don't churches want to grow bigger? Well, we want to grow smaller so we can get bigger. Uh, one of the most understandable complaints about a growing church is that it's really hard to connect with people and to have community. And so we want to feel smaller. Uh, and one of the ways that we're going to do that this year is by not having a congregational re retreat where we all go to uh, Princeton together, but we're going to have a separate men's retreat and a women's retreat so that it feels smaller and it's easier for you to connect. But we not only want to grow smaller as a church, we also want to grow wider. We not only want to reach our city, but we want to reach our world. Um, any second now, our Cambodia team is going to be uh, landing back in the States, uh, and we hope that this fall we can also have a trip to Thailand and uh, next year hopefully add an additional trip to Japan. And our hope is to saturate uh, Asia with a gospel presence and an exilic presence. So we wanna grow wider in terms of our reach. But we not only wanna grow smaller and wider, but we also wanna grow deeper. And so one of the ways that we're gonna do that is this, this summer, we're gonna have a summer intensive uh, that's available for, for any of you uh, to grow deeper in your faith. But we, 
not only are going to do a summer intensive, but last week we started a new series on 1 Corinthians that we're entitling uh, Up and to the Right. And whenever you take a look at a graph and an arrow goes up and to the right, it signifies growth and progression. When an arrow goes down and to the right, it signifies regression and decline. And what we want for every one of you in terms of your spiritual life is to see this trajectory, the arrow go this way in terms of your growth and maturation. And so that's why we're taking a look at 1 Corinthians. That's why Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so I want to step back for a little bit uh, in case you missed last week and give you a little context behind uh, this letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul was in the startup industry, and what he started up was churches. And about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, Paul started a church in the city of Corinth. And he stayed with this church for about a year and a half until it stabilized. And once it stabilized, he moved throughout the Greco-Roman world to start other churches. The problem was, was that about three and a half years after his departure, problems started surfacing up in the church. And because of these problems, Paul wrote four letters to them. Now, we don't really write letters anymore, and so I want you to think of these four letters as very long emails with some counsel and advice on what to do with some of the problems that are surfacing. Now, we don't have two of these letters anymore, but we, we, we do have the second letter and the fourth letter, and the second letter is what we call 1 Corinthians. The fourth letter is what we now call 2 Corinthians. And today, we're taking a look at 1 Corinthians. Now, as far as I know, uh, the Apostle Paul did not write four letters to any other community. And so the fact that he wrote four letters to them signifies, on the one hand, he's very concerned about some of the issues that are happening in the church. On the other hand, it also means that he deeply cares about uh, the, the people and, and the community in Corinth. And one of the reasons why he's a little bit concerned about what's happening with this church in Corinth is because there was more of Corinth in the church than there was of Christ. Uh, last week, I mentioned that just because a ship, a boat, is surrounded by water, it doesn't mean that the boat is going to sink. It's only when the water gets into the ship that the ship begins to sink. And similarly, just because a church is surrounded by a secular culture, it doesn't mean that the church is going to sink. It's only when the ideas and values of the secular culture infiltrate the church that the church begins to spiral downward. And that's what was happening here. There was more of Corinth in the church than the, there was of Christ. And one of the reasons why there was more of Corinth than Christ is because every single day, there is an invisible contest that is taking place. Not only back then, but today. And that invisible contest is what we call, what I call, the happiness contest. And there are many contenders in this happiness contest that are trying to pave you a way for you to experience the good life and happiness. And the Corinthian way seemed to be working. This wasn't a city that was old money like Rome. This was a city that was new money. It was a place where you could make it big. You could make a name for yourself. You could feel important. You could have an identity, uh, a place where you could feel val valued and successful in many ways like our city here. And so the Corinthian way to the good life and happiness, it was working. And so why not follow this way? Why follow the Christian way when it doesn't seem like it's going to lead me to the good life and happiness? And I think a lot of us can relate to that. Have you ever tried praying before? And you didn't get what you asked for? 
the pragmatic part of us would appeal to the fact then why pray? <laughs> it doesn't work. Why not just go this way instead of this way? And that's, that was the same mindset with the Corinthians. Why follow the Christian way when the Corinthian way seems so much better? Uh, in the second century, there was a theologian named Tertullian, and he famously once said, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? That was actually the title that I was going to entitle the sermon. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And what he meant by that was, what does philosophy have to do with religion? And if I can translate that to uh, our modern day terms, it would be, what, what does my modern, western, scientific, hedonistic, consumeristic, materialistic sensibilities have anything to do with religion? Seemingly nothing at all. But I want you to know that uh, in many ways, uh, whether it's philosophy or Christianity, there, there are a lot of similarities because in the end, what they want is the same thing, human flourishing, us thriving, us being happy. And sometimes these roads can run parallel, but oftentimes they run in the opposite directions. And so what Paul is trying to do here in the second chapter is to make a clear distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. So what is the wisdom of the world? And that's what I want to take a look at. Please read with me verse 6. And Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Let me first begin by describing what wisdom is. Um, oftentimes wisdom is defined as knowledge, but it, is, it goes beyond what knowledge is. Knowledge is information. Wisdom, however, is information applied. So I want you to imagine with me that you're a detective. A good detective is able to gather knowledge, information, clues. But a great detective is not only able to gather clues and information, but they're able to put that information together to form a story to understand what reality is about. That's what wisdom is. Not only gathering information and clues, but assembling it and putting it together to understand what reality is about. Now, if that's what wisdom is, what is the wisdom of this age? What is the wisdom of this world? It's the ability to gather information to help us understand reality independent of God. That's what the wisdom of this age and wisdom of this world is. Uh, so in the 18th and 19th century, uh, there were a lot of isms that were born uh, in Europe post-enlightenment. And the enlightenment, of course, was the elevation of reason and rationality. And there were a lot of children that were born from the enlightenment, a lot of isms. So skepticism, existentialism, uh, nihilism. And many of the founders of these isms, most of whom were from Germany or France, uh, many of the founders of these isms were trying to figure out a grid or a framework or a worldview by which they could understand reality, how to live in light of this reality, completely independent of God. And we don't, you know, nihilism, skepticism, you know, what is all this stuff? I mean, it still exists, by the way, but we just translate it uh, differently today. And so think of, think of phrases like carpe diem, YOLO, follow your heart, be true to yourself. And if I can boil all of these isms down to one ism today, 
It's something that I would call happyism. Do whatever makes you happiest. And so if you're facing a difficult decision, our modern sensibilities would say, do whatever makes you happiest and let that be your guide and let that be sort of uh, your compass by which uh, you make uh, your decisions. Uh, Aristotle in the first line of his ethics says, all men seek happiness. That's really what we want at the end of the day. And so, whereas in the 18th and 19th century, most people were on a quest for the truth, I would say that in the 20th, 21st century, we're not so much on a quest for the truth so much as we are on a quest for happiness. All of us just wanna be happy. Um, Blaise Pascal, I wanna read you a quote from him in his um, uh, seminal work, Pensees. Um, if you're not familiar with Pascal, he was a um, French mathematician and theologian. Uh, he invented the vacuum cleaner on the side <laughs> as a hobby, and he also invented what we now call the modern-day computer. <laughs> so not a stupid guy uh, by any means. And in his probably most famous work, Pensees, uh, this is what Blaise Pascal says. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. That's what Pascal says. And yet when you take a look at what the Apostle Paul writes, he says that the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age will all come to nothing. Any wisdom independent of God is nothing but fool's gold and an illusion. And when Paul is talking about the rulers of this age also coming to nothing, he's talking about our cultural prophets. So in the ancient world, it was Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. Our modern day cultural prophets are Disney, Pixar, reality TV, uh, the music that we listen to, Netflix documentaries. Uh, my wife, last week, she just watched Game Changers and she told me to watch it. I thought she wanted me to watch it because it was about sports. <laughs> you know what it's about? Plant-based eating. <laughs> and uh, in the documentary, which, I, which I'm not gonna watch, um, it's, it's basically the idea that animal protein is very un unhealthy for you and it, will not, it is not the way to the good life. It is not the way to happiness. Um, we, so she, she actually, we have something in our fridge right now called Beyond Meat. I have no idea what that is. How can something be beyond me? But basically this, this, we have cultural profits. And so again, whether it's Disney, Pixar, Netflix documentaries, what they're all trying to do is teach us a way for us to experience the good life and happiness. So whether it's pop culture, mainstream culture, food culture, eating cleanly, family culture, go to this school, have this job, it will lead to your happiness. There are all these contenders that are, that are trying to teach us and trying to sell us a way uh, by which we can uh, flourish. And similarly, uh, Christianity is trying to teach us a way. And what Paul is saying is that the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age will eventually come to nothing because, you know, even, if it, even when it comes to plant-based eating, uh, it might give you more energy, it might give you more sustenance, it might give you more longevity, but in the end, you're still going to die. 
And the philosophical absurd part about life is that you might die even more prematurely than you think <laughs> just by walking outside. Which is why, again, Paul says the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age will all come to nothing. However, he does paint for us a greater way. Um, ben Gordon is a name that might be familiar to some of you. Uh, but Ben Gordon was a uh, NBA basketball player. Uh, most people thought that Ben Gordon was six foot three, but in reality, he was six foot one. I'm six foot one. The odds of someone six foot one making the pros, given how international the game is today, you have less than a 1% chance of making the NBA. Yet Ben Gordon did. And he not only made the NBA, but he played in the NBA for 11 years. He played for the Pistons, the Bulls, the Magic. And over the course of 11 years, Ben Gordon acquired over $98 million, not including endorsements. So Ben Gordon made well over $100 million. And about five years ago, he retired. And you would think that if you had $100 million, still you know, in your 30s, You'd be somewhere on a yacht in Bali, Bali, or Turks and Caicos, experiencing the good life. And yet, in a very raw article in the Players' Tribune, Ben Gordon talks about the five years, the five years, what it's been like for him post-retirement, in a very raw and real article that I want to read for us on the first page of your bulletin. Gordon says, there was a point in time when I thought about killing myself every single day for about six weeks. I would be up on the roof of my apartment building at four o'clock in the morning, just pacing to the edge of the ledge, looking over, pacing back and forth, back and forth, just thinking, I'm really about to do it. I'm about to escape from all this expletive. This was right after my last year in the league, and I was living in a brownstone up in Harlem. I had lost my career, my identity, and my family all pretty much simultaneously. I was manic depressive. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. And when I say I wasn't sleeping, it wasn't like a whole different, le it was like a whole different level of insomnia. Every night I'd wake up at the same time like clockwork. And that's when the demons would come out. When you're up all night and it's quiet and it's just you alone with your deepest thoughts, that's when the darkness really starts to take over your whole psyche. That's when the paranoia and the anxiety is on you. I started having panic attacks that were so intense they had a way to them. You know what it felt like? It literally felt like this black cloak got thrown on top of me and it was suffocating me. But not just physically, it was suffocating my soul. All I could do to relieve the pressure was to sit on the floor and scream at the top of my lungs. I'm talking like, Ah, at the top of my lungs like an animal. It literally felt like this black cloak got thrown on top of me and it was suffocating me. But not just physically, it was suffocating my soul. By that point, I didn't feel alive anymore. It felt like I was living in the underworld, for real. I remember one night I was out mad late chilling with my boy Philippe. And we were right by the Williamsburg Bridge, and I said, yo, no lie, I think I'm dead. This can't be my real life anymore. This got to be some kind of purgatory. Like, I'm a dead person, but I'm going through these motions still. Like, I'm a dead man walking. The only explanation for the pain I was feeling was biblical. 
like I had died somehow and I was stuck somewhere between heaven and hell. Now, if you come to uh, Exilic long enough, uh, you will hear more stories like this. And so whether it's from Andre Agassi, Tom Brady, Tennessee Williams, you will hear countless stories of people who in this life achieved the apex of life, who had everything and yet they had nothing. They had everything that we would want, that we would think would lead to the happiness and the good life, and yet they felt like they had nothing. It's sort of like a treasure map. Imagine you have kids and they make a treasure map of the backyard, and there are all these dots that are sort of snaking through the backyard leading up to a giant red X. And underneath that red X is where the buried treasure is. That's a cute activity. Hopefully it takes up some time so you don't have to play with them. But in the end, you know that that treasure map is nothing but an illusion because there is no buried treasure that is there. And oftentimes, the wisdom of this world has us chasing this illusion, this rabbit hole, this fool's gold where we frantically work searching and searching for a buried treasure that does not lie there. I like what Ravi Zacharias, he was quoting someone else, I forget who he quoted, but he said this is the reason why the 18th and 19th century isms, they all became a wasm because they don't really work. So why the wisdom of God then versus the wisdom of this world? Uh, take a look with me at verse two. Paul says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now this is a very paradoxical statement in the sense that Paul was a very, very educated man. So why would he say that he doesn't know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Well, this is a hyperbolic, exaggerated statement. And what he's trying to say here is that nothing is as important as knowing that Jesus Christ was crucified for us. Now for ancient people, the idea that Jesus or God would be crucified for us uh, did not make sense at all. It was inconceivable. In The Republic by Plato, Plato once said, does anyone, God or human, make themselves worse in any way? No, that's, who would wanna make themselves worse? And so the, the idea of the downward mobility of God, God becoming flesh, incarnating himself, and then dying, it was just unfathomable. And in many ways, uh, the cross, the idea of Jesus being crucified is just as inconceivable for us today as modern people. Why? Well, on the one hand, historically, whether you're religious or irreligious, we all agree that Jesus was a real historical figure. I think most people today, whether you're secular or from a different religion, most people still have a great uh, amount of respect for Jesus and the way that he lived his life and his teachings. The more perplexing part is, how does someone who lives so wisely die so foolishly? nonetheless at the age of 33. And so even, even for us, we have a great respect for the way that he lived, but the, the fact that he would die at 33 is unfathomable to us. Uh, so why would he do that? So I want you to think about um, a laptop. You just bought a MacBook Pro and someone uh, accidentally spills all this water on it, and so it breaks. At that point, you have two options. Number one, you can make them pay for it. Or number two, you can forgive them 
and pay for it yourself. But either way, someone has to pay, you or the other person. Now that concept of payment not only applies to our materialistic possessions, but it also applies to our relationships. When someone deeply, deeply hurts you, you have two options. You can make them pay, take revenge on them, exact justice, or you can forgive them and pay that emotional cost that you experience yourself and absorb that debt yourself. But either way, someone has to pay, the other person or yourself. Why did Jesus die? It's because relationally speaking, there is a disconnect between us and him. That relationship is now broken. But rather than making us pay for going this way, the prodigal way, versus the way to the truth and the life, rather than making us pay, he forgives us. And he pays that emotional cost himself with the life of his son. I've used this uh, illustration before, but Rod Rosenblatt is a Lutheran minister. He's also a professor at Concordia University in Irvine. He's also one of the hosts of uh, a podcast that I listen to regularly. And Rod, Rod is, he's gotta be in his mid-60s now, but he tells a story of when he was 16 years old. He just got his driver's license. So he and his buddies are driving out in the freeway in California, and they were also drinking and driving. So obviously they get into a bad car accident. And so Rod is thinking, what am I gonna tell my parents? And so he's home and he's just waiting for his dad to get back home from work. And um, his dad seeing that Rod was in a little bit of distress, he says, son, are you okay? And he says, dad, I, I, I totaled the car. And so his dad very tenderly says, well, son, are you okay? And Rod says, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, but the car's totaled. And, and so the dad says, as long as you're okay, that's the only thing that matters. And so Rod goes back into his room, he's thinking, <laughs> just dodged one there. But as the minutes go by, he felt like the Holy Spirit was tugging on his conscience. Because he not only told his dad the truth, but he just told him half of the truth. So later on that evening, he goes back into his dad's bedroom and he says, Dad, um, I didn't exactly tell you the whole truth. You see, the reason why I got into a car accident was because we were all drinking and driving. And seeing the tears in Rod's eyes, his dad says, well, son, how about tomorrow morning we get you a brand new car? Now, when most people hear that story, they think, what? <laughs> what? He doesn't deserve a brand new car. He should be grounded for the rest of his life. He should, he should be experiencing his father's wrath, judgment. He doesn't deserve that. He deserves this, and you would be absolutely right. But you know what? On that day, on that day at the age of 16, it was the very first time the coin had finally dropped. You know what that feeling is like? When the coin finally drops and something clicks, a light bulb goes off. Because for the first time in Rod's life, he finally understood the concept of grace. That we don't get what we deserve, but we get something far better. And on that day, he became a Christian. Why do we not get what we deserve? It's because Jesus got what we deserve in our place. 
by hanging on the cross. What we get is something far, far better, forgiveness and everlasting life. In karma, religion, you get what you deserve. What goes around comes around. But in Christianity, we don't get what we deserve. We get something far, far better. But the cross isn't just a sign of our salvation. My Herculean task this morning is to convince you that the cross is not just our way to salvation, but it is a way, a mindset, a mentality on how we should live every single day of our lives. Uh, take a look with me at verse 12 to 13. And Paul says, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. It's very difficult not to talk about the Holy Spirit in this chapter because the Holy Spirit is mentioned 11 times. And the job of the Holy Spirit the job of the Holy Spirit is to teach us spiritual realities. In other words, the world that we live in is not just material, but it is immaterial. Uh, and so there is not only a physical way to live our lives, and that, that, but very much there is a spiritual way that we ought to live our lives. And so this is sort of the limit that Dr. Phil can give us, Oprah, Eckhart Tolle, Jordan Peterson, and NPR podcast. There is a limit at which they can teach us because there is a spiritual dimension to the world that we live in. And it is only the Holy Spirit that can teach us the spiritual dimension and the spiritual world that we live in. I like the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity when he talks about different ranges of human experience. So he says a plant, think of a plant, it's a real life, but it has a limited range at which it can experience life. A plant can't run, fly, walk, so it has a limited range. Animals, also real life, but they too have a limited range at which they can experience life. Humans real life, but humans also have a very limited range at which we can experience life. And the reason for that, C.S. Lewis would say, is because there is also a spiritual dimension. Unless you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you cannot understand the full scope of reality that we not only live in a material world, but a spiritual world as well. So whenever I go to an art gallery, I'm looking at Renaissance art. I don't know anything about art. So I can't really my range of experience in terms of delight, it's very limited. I mean, my wife Hannah and I, we were in Paris, we went to the Louvre, I saw the Mona Lisa, looked at it for like 30 seconds, I was like, I'm good. <laughs> a limited, I don't, I just limited range, right, of, of uh, valuing that. Uh, for you, if you go to a football game, if you don't know anything about the game, you have a very limited range at which you can experience what you're observing. If you lose your keys, you drop your keys out in the, in the middle of the street, in the middle of the night, and all you have is a street lamp to help guide you find those keys, you have a very limited range in which you can find your keys. Do you know what the job of the Holy Spirit is? It is to illuminate everything so that we can find our keys. The Spirit illuminates the material world and the immaterial world so that we can more, uh, have a better understanding of the uh, the reality that we live in. C.S. My favorite quote from C.S. Lewis is this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, the sun, but because by it I can see everything else. And that is what the Holy Spirit does for us. Out of the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Spirit is by far the shyest one because his job is to always point other people to the work of Jesus Christ. But not only to his death, 
but also in terms of the way that he lived. Not only fulfilling the law perfectly, but also as an example of how we ought to live our lives as well. And how can you do it? You can do it because the moment you become a Christian, the Spirit plants within you the mind of Christ. So if you take a look at the very last verse, at the last phrase, Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? It is a mentality. Uh, I've been married for almost seven years. Uh, whenever I'm in a predicament, I not only think, huh, what should I do? But now I think, what would Hannah do? In a certain sense, I have two minds. When you become a Christian, you now have the mind of Christ that is uh, planted within you. And so what is that mind? What is that mentality? I would say that it is a cruciform mentality. For those of you who have done marriage counseling, you know what the word cruciform means. And it comes from the world of architecture. In medieval times from 500 AD to 1500 AD, medieval churches were literally in the shape of a cross. There would be a long main hall with two wings on the side. The word cruciform then means to be in the shape of a cross. And so what should our mentality be? Cruciform. Our hearts should be cross-shaped. What does that mean? It's not a killer's mentality where we destroy our competition. Rather, it's a being killed mentality where we deny ourselves, put to death the self, put to death our time, put to death our freedom, put to death our conveniences, put to death our comfort. The cross is a symbol of sacrifice and death. And my Herculean task is to persuade you today that it is this way that will lead to your happiness and to your flourishing uh, and to your freedom. The cruciform life is not a me first mentality, but it is a you first mentality. It is a Philippians 2 attitude where uh, Paul says, consider others better than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, which is by the way, do whatever makes you happiest, but he says, look to the interests of others. In other words, do whatever makes them uh, happiest. To have a cruciform mentality then cannot just be an activity, but it must be a way of life. Now we love the phrase, a way of life. And whenever we use an expression like that, what we're talking about is that something has so gripped us that it changes the way that we live. CrossFit, way of life. Eating clean, way of life. Yoga is a way of life. It's not just an activity, but it's a way of life. Uh, in the way that we live. Now you might be thinking, why in the world would I want to live this way? <laughs> Doesn't sound very Instagrammable and I don't think it's gonna cause envy at all if I were to live in such a way where I'm constantly killing myself. And a part of the reason why it's very difficult for us to grasp is because we have bought the wisdom of this age hook, line, and sinker. The wisdom of this age would suggest do whatever makes you happiest and the way that you experience that is by living a pain-free life. And so if you do experience suffering pain, it's nothing but a portal that you have to go through to get to the other side where life is completely pain-free. But the cruciform way of living, the cruciform way of living, when you think about pain and suffering, it's not, such, it's not just something that you have to get through. Rather, it is a tension that you gladly live with, where you are constantly dying to yourself, your freedom, your, your your time, your pride, and your ego because the sacrificial life 
is the most satisfied life. A very influential writer named Anne Voskamp was riding on a plane and she was having a conversation with the Jewish rabbi that was sitting right beside her. And the rabbi at one point in the conversation says, you know how we all want more out of life? And Anne shook her head. She said, yes. And he says, you know how we all want more out of life? He, so he, he takes a water bottle that is on her tray completely full and he opens up the water bottle and he begins to pour that water bottle into a white styrofoam cup. And he says, you know how we all want more out of life? Well, to experience more out of life, we must first learn to be emptied. Empty of our pride, our rights, our scorecards that we use against people, the terabyte of memory that we use as debt and a weaponry against other people. We must first learn to be empty of ourselves in order to gain uh, wisdom. And ever since that conversation, um, she, every morning she wakes up and uh, draws a, a cross uh, on her wrist every single morning to remind herself that this is the way to live. This is the way to experience the good life. And she draws that cross over some scars that have formed over the years when she used to cut herself as a teenager. But she looks at the cross as a reminder that the way to experience the satisfied life is by first living a sacrificial life. And I think, oh, how many more marriages would be happier if both spouses thought cruciform? How many more roommate situations would be less tense if everyone learned the art of dying to themselves? How many more successful people would be happy if they understand that the way to the good life is not this way, but the way to the good life is by denying yourself daily and taking up your cross daily and following Jesus. Isaiah, in 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 21, he says, this is the way, walk in it. And what I would say to you is that if the wisdom of this age and the way to experience a good life and happiness has not worked for you. Why not try the cruciform way, the way of the cross, the way of denying yourself to experience what uh, the good life is all about? See, as it says, aim for happiness and you'll probably miss the mark. Aim for holiness and happiness will always be a byproduct of that. So to close, let me just give one final analogy. Think of a seed. When a seed falls to the ground and dies and it's broken, something beautiful can grow out of that. But the seed, first the seed must first be broken. If the seed is not broken, nothing can blossom out of that. But there is a beauty that can rise out of the brokenness. And similarly, our mindset, our mentality on a daily basis needs to be death to the self, brokenness to the self so that something beautiful can arise out of it. If you have not tried the cruciform way, try it, because it will lead to your flourishing and happiness. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a uh, difficult teaching and um, very counterintuitive and countercultural because uh, we don't like to sacrifice things and we don't want to live a life where we're in constant tension with pain, and yet um, by not following this way, indirectly what we're actually saying is that the life that you lived was imperfect, unsatisfied, and unfulfilling because you constantly live with tension, with suffering and pain, 
and yet you lived the most perfect and happy and flourishing life. You had no regret about dying at 33. You, you did not think about buying a yacht in Turks and Caicos or wanting to get married because you were so young. You, you left with no regret because you lived the fulfilled, happy life. And yet it was a life filled with tension and pain. Help us to see that that is the way. Help us to walk in it. In your name we pray, amen.